Hello, and welcome back to the future of figure skating. My name is Anna Keller, and in this episode, I'm so excited to share my conversation with Dr. Tina Chen. It's great to discuss so many of the aspects of equity and inclusion in skating with someone who is actively working within the Canadian skating community to bring about institutional and cultural change. So a little bit about Tina. Tina Chen has been named one of Canada's 100 most powerful women. She is a distinguished professor of history at the University of Manitoba, and her teaching and research interests are in the areas of modern Chinese history, anti-colonial solidarity movements, feminist and socialist projects for social justice, and histories of race and anti-racism. She's been a longtime advocate for equity and diversity within academic settings, and in February 2022, she was named the inaugural executive lead for equity, diversity, and inclusion at the University of Manitoba. In the skating world, Tina is currently a coach with Skate Winnipeg. As a skater, she was a three-time competitor at Canadian championships in pairs in the novice level and dance at the junior level, and was the Ontario intercollegiate champion with the University of Toronto varsity skating team. She's also the mom of two skaters, so she has really seen the skating world from every angle. Recently, she's been combining her experience advocating for equity with her figure skating experience. She is active in the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance and is also a member of the Skate Canada Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Committee. I first met Tina through my Paris partner, Erica Rand, who, as herself an academic studying gender and figure skating, has overlapping interests with Tina. Erica and I had the amazing experience of training in Winnipeg last spring with Tina and Paris coach Kevin Daw. Working with Tina and Kevin not only improved our skating, it also boosted my confidence as a non-binary skater training in a gender non-conforming pair. I'm so happy Tina agreed to come onto the podcast and share some of her knowledge with us. Thanks, Tina, for doing the podcast. I want to talk to you about a lot of the different roles that you have. But first off, you're a member of the Skate Canada Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about how that committee came into being and what some of the projects that you've been working on with it. Thanks for having me come join in conversation and sharing some of this. So what began as the Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Working Group was formed in the summer of 2020. Like for many organizations, it was a response to the murder of George Floyd and a recognition that sport needed to be accountable and that they needed to start taking action. I wasn't part of the group for its at its very um, first inception, so I'm not entirely familiar with exactly who initiated and how it came to be. But certainly the way I kind of experienced it is that first we saw the murder of George Floyd, we saw so many athletes speaking out and um, the formation of the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance and the calls to action. In my mind, I kind of see these as all happening at the same time. And Gate Canada, like many others, put out a statement in support of Black lives um, and Black people. But I think very quickly, as we all know from the press and the media, we're called out on accountability. So what does that really mean to say that? And what were they doing? And I think that's where the working group was established. Largely, um, in its first instance, you know, former athletes, people within the Skate Canada organization. And then through a sort of connections, and particularly because I've been reaching out with FSDIA, I was invited to an early meeting 
because you know, I do work in other contexts on anti-racism, on equity, and really started talking about what it would mean to organize a committee and work in certain ways. For me, this is a really memorable moment because it was one of the first times that I had spoken about what were community-based political commitments that I do in other parts of my work. So my job as a university professor, my community activism in Asian communities on anti-racism that I usually keep quite separate from what I do in the skating world. And so it was one of these places where I kind of went in and I was like, well, this is my role. And I think a heightened awareness of the what's at stake if you don't speak about racism, foregrounding what it would mean to have equity-based approaches, what social justice means as both an approach, but a commitment and a critique of performative politics. I think that's kind of what I brought forward and what was like, this is what I think. These are my perspectives. And then like to my huge surprise, they asked me if I would come back and join the committee. And so the EDI working group from Whiskey Canada has until about two months ago was meeting weekly with a real focus on educating ourselves, but also the role of education and collective capacity building through education. Not a large group, you know, sort of membership has shifted a bit because over two years it does a bit, but I think there's eight or 10 of us a total at the moment. Beginning to think through that education about how we work through community-based ways, how we center voices. Really at the beginning, it was listening and learning. And how do we do that at different levels? How do we engage leadership? How do we engage the grassroots? How do we create spaces also where those who felt marginalized can feel like they're being heard and seen? And how do you even just open conversations about racism in sport and anti-racism? One of the most exciting developments of this is that as of sometime late summer, this early fall, it's now transformed from being a working group to being the Skate Canada Equity, Diversity, Inclusion and Accessibility Operating Committee. That's a big change and I think is also something that signals commitment into the future. Right. So that it's not just a working group to meet a specific moment and kind of feeling of crisis in sport, but really a commitment ongoing. You mentioned performative politics, and I think it's easy for organizations to put out a statement and then harder to figure out what does it actually look like for us to shift power and what steps could we actually do as you were having those initial conversations and learning, what were some of the critiques or areas that were coming forward where racism has been a part of the sport? Well, I think they're coming from many different ways, both from the personal impact and personal experiences, the ways in which microaggressions function, but also the kind of systemic barriers. So a lot of conversations about just questions of access, who's close to rinks, things that you don't always have control over. We know as neighborhoods gentrify and suburbanization takes place, facilities are increasingly put out in the suburbs, inner city communities not served by them. So then how do you continue to have access knowing those and knowing also the kinds of dynamics that happen? So, you know, a lot of reflection on both the spaces that you can control and have some change over, and then all those areas that just sometimes feel overwhelming. And so one of the things that I really liked early on is that we started through, I think, education and creating those kind of spaces during panels. We started off with a talking about race panel, trying to amplify and bring forward voices from across, beginning with a kind of educational structure and plan and really self-consciously asking people to read and reflect on resources produced by racialized people. 
one of the ways where there's a capacity to take this on is that Gate Canada had already worked um, previously with William Bridal and others and had developed a trans-inclusion protocol. We had sort of been doing work, particularly around 2S LGBTQIA plus inclusion and what that meant and initial steps. So there had already been kind of this way of reviewing processes, thinking about what had to change, some of the work, particularly in what we call in the Canadian context, right, our star system, our star pathways, thinking about what does it mean to be gender inclusive? What does it mean to move off gender binary? So redefining what a definition of a team is to skaters, you know, all of these things, some of that work had already been done. And I think this had opened up the space for conversation where everyone's like, yeah, but we haven't actually talked about other groups who are marginalized or subject to oppression and microaggressions. And so when we start thinking about safety and in that realm, and when the working group was established, we were also well into the long process of the revised safe sport training module, the kinds of process for independent reporting of incidents. So that had already been ongoing. And so these kind of were coming together at the right time. So as we moved into final stages, I felt like there was also an opening to say, let's think about all the different ways in which oppressions exist and recognizing both individual impact, but also that the systemic change needs to be done. And it was exciting because that way we can put forward things that sometimes were just about what would make it better for individuals in that specific moment. And then also what bigger changes are necessary. And it felt like we could move back and forth a little bit and come up with projects and think about different levels. And that sustained us, right? Because otherwise it seems way too big. And you're like, how am I going to do this? Like, how is anyone going to do this work? One example that I know I was probably aware of before I knew about your work, before I knew about the committee, was the naming of the C-step and S-step instead of the Mohawk and Choctaw, and that intentional shifting of the language. Was that something that had already happened prior to this committee's work, or how did that come about? It had already been a discussion. My recollection is we were having a discussion at one meeting, and I think I said something like, well, something's got to be done about this. Particularly within the Canadian context, thinking about truth and reconciliation, thinking about what does it mean to meaningfully engage with Indigenous communities, center voices, and people are like, oh, that's in the works. you know. And it's an active conversation already, and I think that's where certainly what was then the EDI working group was able to kind of contribute and think about its importance as a first step in decolonizing language. As you know, when we talk about whether it's homo and transphobia, if we're talking about racism, if we're talking about ableism and ageism, that language is so much an operation of power. So what language we use and who thinks they have a right to use certain terms and the work that those terms do. We all kind of jumped in and we were like, this does need to change. It was great that it had been initiated in other parts predating the group, but the group was able to contribute to what that would mean and how it was also part of a longer vision. So setting a kind of first step. So not something that we say, great, we did that, you know, we feel good about ourselves, but really then being able to message that this was about initial steps to decolonize language, that we realize language is power. And that, you know, at no point, at least, you know, as we all can find in the history of these terms, were any Indigenous communities consulted about what they mean. The general feeling is that the history behind a Mohawk is that it's British ice dancers who thought that their turn looked somewhat like the visiting troupe of dancers who had come over for some kind of festival and activity. And so again, these are all stereotypical representations. And I think the messaging of it in the first instance was a little bit low key, but 
what it really enabled and that I think was most powerful, at least my own experience as a coach, was that it opened up the space of conversations. When I would turn to skaters and say, this week, you know, it's going to be announced. I'm no longer going to teach this dance, calling it, you know, this name, because now it's a C-step. And they'd kind of look at me and I'd always say like, you know, do you know why? And I teach students from, you know, like eight through 18. And most of them, the responses were things like, it's about time. Thank goodness I don't have to say that anymore. This is exactly what we're talking about in school. I'm going to tell my teacher about this. Or someone would say, well, I'm not quite sure. And I'd say, well, what do you learn about Indigenous communities? And it would open a space for conversations that we never really have in skating and the power of naming, which would be fascinating because it often then went to things like, well, why is that called the American Waltz? Why is that the European Waltz? Why is it this? And so they would follow up and I'd say, well, why don't you go do some research? (laughs) Go find out. But for me, also the power of the naming is that when you change names and you change terminology, you invite conversations about the power of language. And I was really just excited to see how my students were very receptive. But I think in each club, it's not always being the same and it's not always even. And so it's always a moment of conversation that allows us also to talk about what relationships are building with Indigenous communities. We see that kind of momentum happening and certainly creating spaces for conversation and learning. And it's exciting. I think also the ability to shift language also opens up the idea that things in skating and in the rules are not set in stone and what you've inherited does not have to be the only way that it is, but you can reconsider things and shift them over time. It's also interesting to think about this in an international context. A couple of years ago, the Ukrainian Skating Federation had pointed out that a, a C and an S in Cyrillic are the same letter. And how are they going to translate that? When Skate Ukraine sort of took up and wrote a really like interesting, reflective piece about why this change would come into place and the kind of internationalization, you know, and it made me also really reflect on how do we translate terms? How do we do this work? And certainly with the Skate Canada, the EDI working group, this is where we've had a lot of discussion as well about gender diverse language and Skate Canada operates in French and English. And so the changes that you think are easy and that should be straightforward in the English language, right, don't work as well. And so really also having to learn what are those terms and engaging with community and hearing the different responses where you have the language where the feminine and the masculine really operate in the everyday. So that's a reality I think that we keep trying to work through as well. And just opening those conversations, acknowledging that the space that we can really have control over is the domestic space. So it's the arena that Skate Canada can set their rules, can set their guidelines. And then once anyone moves internationally, that you're on the international circuit and most events are under the purview of the ISU. But that when you take action, that it invites others to reflect, you know, and I think this is what we hope. We also know that in our communities, as you and I are speaking as well, that particularly the conversations between those in Canada and the U.S. who are active on these issues that we're really trying to build community and think hopefully one of the things that happens is that when changes happen in one federation that others think are good steps, that it also provides support and rationales and a kind of community that says it's not just you alone who's trying to push through them recognizing that really we all start with our federations or NSOs and work from there. I wonder if in some of the countries that are just trying to establish new federations, bring figure skating at a different level, if it also doesn't just become here as a block of things that you must adopt wholesale as given, but could encourage people to think about what does it look like to bring skating into your context, not just how do you conform to what skating already is. 
that would be the ideal world, wouldn't it? It would be so great if rather than saying like, you know, beginning with here's our ISU rules and how do we then build everything to build up to that? Obviously going to a Grand Prix, going to an ISU sponsor competition, it's like the skating is amazing. It's exciting. But the reality of skating is that very few of your participants are at that elite level. Very few of your spectators get to actually be there. Very few of your judges and officials, right? So it's a really, it's a small proportion. And what you want to do is build that skating for everyone framework, reflecting on what does it mean to make it the strongest program and kind of sport organization in your own area. And my goal would be that, you know, if you're a newer federation and you're setting up, that you would have some time and capacity to be reaching out to the different federations saying, not just like, how are you doing things now, but where do you want to get yourself in five years? Because if you're just setting your rules and framework now, you have an ability to put into place what the rest of us are imagining for the future few years, right? And I think that could be so exciting to be going around saying like, what could it really look like? What's possible? And I think there's such capacity to actually imagine skating based in equity, based in social justice. That doesn't mean that there'll be no barriers, but that you could imagine it intentionally trying to reduce those barriers to me would be like a dream. You mentioned earlier some of the work that has been going on around gender inclusion, and that's in some ways how we got connected because having a gender nonconforming pair and looking to figure out how we could get support, realizing that Canada was already further ahead in that regard. And I'm going to try not to do the thing as an American of being like, well, Canada, they just have everything figured out as if you don't have your own issues too. But in so many of these ways, this is where Skate Canada is a few steps ahead. Could you summarize what inclusion for trans skaters looks like or the ability to have pairs that are skaters of any gender? So one, things like synchro skating, everything just you know, names the number of skaters. So really trying to move away from identifying gender, particularly moving away from specifying a gender binary where possible. So for synchro skating, however many skaters, 16 skaters, so that there allows, I think, space on team to create the teams and for everyone to belong in the teams without having to name their gender. There's been some, in the last year, actually a few months, I guess, some really nice changes. I was just signing up as a volunteer for Skate Canada Challenge. And so work to also recognize the kind of microaggressions that can be present in filling out forms. So you know, new registration forms that are asking for pronouns. Skating is a gendered sport, but some of the sections and are moving towards and we're trying to kind of encourage wider implementation that, you know, when you're filling out your registration for a competition in the star system or even the competitive stream where the gender question comes up, it says gender. And right now the forms really only allow for male, female, non-binary. Our preference would have been, you know, sort of transgender fluid non-binaries would be a little bit broader, but there could only be one term for, I, I think it was actually a translation and a kind of form thing, but what's happening now is allowing that. And then for those who select non-binary, a new drop-down menu appears, and then it says competition gender category. So that people aren't being asked to pass or to have to claim a category, but recognizing what's the key component of our trans inclusion protocol. And that is that a skater has a right to compete in their event of their choosing. But rather than also saying, so now we're not going to recognize any other, we're only going to stay within a binary. And so I think this is a huge step forward. And when I was filling out a form, my kind of excitement of filling out the form and seeing it, because we've talked a lot about this in the working group, people have talked about how to make it happen. But when you're actually doing a form and you see it in a new way, I kept saying to everyone, did you feel 
fill out the form? And others were like, yeah. And I was like, but did you notice? And I was so excited about this because those we know also have impacts. And I think these seem like some of the small changes, but we know, and I think we're hearing from a lot of skaters, particularly non-binary skaters, changes have to happen now, not what you have think are going to happen in three years, because I'm really skating and this is like formative time for me now. And so we also stop trying to do everything in a perfect way. And we're like, what can we start doing on some of those you know, other changes that have happened and these predated the working group, but we're trying to consolidate and then also move from a language of gender inclusion, which I think informed our first policies to recognizing gender diversity. There's no gendered notions of costumes, definitions in the star system of a team is simply two skaters. And so that would be for dance, that would be for pairs. And so that means that when doing elements, there's no specified role. In ice dance, the shift, which seems quite a long time ago to me now, but to also specifying lead and follow steps and allowing skaters to move back and forth between the streams. The very first time they did this sort of early on, it was that you had to stay in one stream. And I think now it's the it's up to the coach to decide as they work with you, which so you could take one dance in the doing the lead steps. You could do another dance as a follow steps. You could do them all in one. You can move back and forth. For me, these only make for better skaters, better understanding of what you can do on the ice. But I think these are, again, big steps in shifting how we think about gender diversity, but also just accessibility to sport. Some of those rules actually meant smaller communities had to fly in sometimes like a male ice dance partner who no one had ever met, see them for like an hour beforehand. Obviously, this is not the way that you'd be athlete centered and have someone do their best with someone they've never met before. Often someone taller, you've got everything from the lowest, like every skater needing to be partnered. It's just not a good model for accessibility and comfort and athlete centered. And I think all of those kind of came together in some of those policies. So yeah, there's a lot of excitement and also a willingness to think about what that means and the ramifications to the podium pathway as well. Just to make sure that folks were not familiar with the Canadian system, how would you describe what the STAR system is? The STAR system is our kind of what we think of as the foundational system. It is a skating for life program. So it's really begins STAR 1 to 5 is all the foundational skills. Sometimes people think of it as the introduction to figure skating. Um, it moves through skating skills, dance and free skate. But then there's also the STAR 6 to gold, which you know has skaters doing up if it's in the single stream. Through triple jumps, if you want to, through double jumps, it's still a competitive stream, but it really recognizes that amount of training that you might be doing for the podium pathway is quite different, the kinds of goals that you might have. So it's really about having people participate in skating in the way that they want. The star stream also has creative improv, which is always gender diverse. You know, there are, it's an all gender event, our showcase events, the team events, the element events, all of the ways that you create different ways for people to participate. And then the podium pathway generally starts for us. Technically, it starts at the pre-novice level, which is the USFS intermediate. But generally, we also have a pre-juvenile and juvenile. So that says people are streaming out from star five. They will often go one direction or the other. And then the podium pathway is the one that goes internationally. Have there been any pairs or ice dance teams so far that have been taking advantage of the new flexibility in the rules? That's a really good question. And I'm not really sure if there have been, mostly because star competitions are very local. So they're specific to your own, usually regional area. And so not in Manitoba that 
I'm aware of, but I see huge flexibility in the way that dances get assessed. So no questioning about who's going to partner, if they're going to do it solo, if they're going to be shadow danced, a kind of sense that this is available for everybody. Huge interest, like casually in our skating club as I'm doing things. Sometimes it's just me helping a skater. And so I'm kind of pairing them, whether it's a pair spin, but I'm trying to get them to do their camel spin better. And then they're like, that's cool. And my skaters and I'll be like, oh, I can teach you how to do it together. And they're like, that'd be great. What I appreciate is that if the coaches and the club have an openness and a sense of the opportunities, then that will kind of unfold from there. So whether any are competing, I haven't seen any, but I'm actually not at many competitions where there are star dance teams or star pairs. And because the star system actually asks that skaters be exposed to all disciplines and different things, that this just sort of worked in. So rather than probably seeing people training together, you see people, you know, learning things, experimenting, just whether it's doing some skating skills exercises, or as I said, you know, often just an upright one foot spin, these kinds of things. So for me, this is the importance of just making it part of normal skating practice, right? That some things you do solo, sometimes you skate with people and that there's no restrictions. And I think that's really going to help accept accessibility in the end. I was a former ice dancer and I was also a uh, pair skater. So the idea that you just wait around and you kind of keep training and training until you're so lucky and everybody like, oh, you're so lucky to have a partner and these kinds of power relations in them. And the idea that there's an infinite number of young female skaters just waiting for a male partner, the Disney narrative of the prince is going to save you too entrenched in the skating kind of systemics, the structures, and it's got to go. One of the side projects that I'm working on at the moment is an article about pairs as a discipline and how to grow it. I've been talking to skaters and coaches as I go to competitions and trying to get a lot of perspectives from different countries. But exposure at an earlier age of skating is also one of the things that has been a theme. And so I, I love that within the star system, you might do a bit of ice dance, you might do a bit of pairs and not only have those be specialized things that you might once you've already tried it for an elite singles career and then realized you're not going to do an elite singles career, that only then you might get exposed to those other disciplines. So, you know, as a coach, if I'm doing a skating skills exercise or group skills, I often will ask people to shadow skate, sometimes skate in formations of four, because I think this is also a way to expose people to synchro skating, to think about what is it to skate with somebody else? What is it to be matching, to think about unison? But it generally makes them do it better because they're much more conscious of their own movement. They're conscious of somebody else. It's a basic coaching technique of someone who's doing something really well. You put someone who's kind of working towards that, whose body isn't quite moving the same way, and they start to mirror each other right and so this is just a way of getting that moving together there's times where they're like oh I'm really tired and then you're like cool let's do some side by side jumps you know and all of a sudden like their fatigue of I can't rep this jump anymore but you tell them they can do it side by side with somebody it often helps with timing they're thinking about what other people are doing but it becomes a way of just being aware and that it's fun but it's also different I grew up as a pair skater where they often used to have people lifting each other outside of your own teams. And so that it wasn't always gender specified, although I would have to say this was the 1980s. So never did they actually have a male skater lift a male skater, but the female skaters, the older female skaters lifting the, the younger ones was a common thing, right? So one would hope that you would just develop a broader understanding. So it's a little bit more like the modern dance world, that things may appear and have a different impact and effect, but that rules are not specifically always gendered, right? Like there's no reason why anyone can't do a pivot and someone else be in a desk problem. I would say the same with a lift or a throw and that throws are fantastically exciting, right? The fact that you think that only certain people could ever experience that.
just really takes away from the possibilities in skating. So whether it's just to try them or whether it's really then to begin to train them, but I think an understanding of them is always good. It also seems like as you were describing the STAR program, that that's also such an important part of accessibility and equity. There's this assumption that if you don't start when you're very, very young, you might as well not start or you certainly might as well not compete because otherwise you'll be in competition with little kids. The idea that it's too late really works against anyone who didn't have access or information about it earlier on. So in the star one to three, a lot of it is element focused, even in the programs, because you're being assessed a standard. So no one's being assessed against anyone else. So you're all on the same standards. I think this is really important. Elements, categories, spin, you know, competitions, all these are really important because not everybody gets the ice time or has the coaching ability to have a solo or a program. So when we think about them, you know, allowing for elements competitions where people can sort of be out there and being assessed to standard makes a big difference. Those first programs, those are doing through just the single jumps. It's also set up so if you don't have a lot of ice time, you could have all your skaters doing the same program. And that's an intentional one. I'm not seeing it as much as people people do it because there is an excitement about that new program, but it's sort of set up with an expectation that this could be what you would do because it helps with coaching. And so a lot of it is also thinking about how do you work through, instead of thinking that immediately everyone moves into private lessons, how can you also do these in, you know, smaller group lessons, which is also about cost and accessibility, creating cohorts and friendships among skaters so that you keep them involved. Um, All of these things are, I think, really great new foundations. I love the artistic stream where it's really encouraging skaters to do what they want. Again, they're all gender. There's no age specification. If you have a lot of kids in a competition, you usually divide them so that people are more or less against their age. But really, it's allowing people to also succeed on their own terms so they get to define what's meaningful for skating for them. So is it because you love to skate and perform? Is it because you want to jump a lot? I think I didn't say this before, but Skate Canada for its new strategic plan from 2022 to 26 has skating for everyone as one of the priorities. And this is so exciting for me because it includes all of that, includes more intentional focus on what needs to happen for adult skating to recognize that adult skating isn't just people who once were skaters and want to come back, but it's also those who are and learn to skate as an adult. It's those who want to be competitive and thinking about adult competition, those who want to actually try out new disciplines in skating that they never had the opportunity to do before. So it's a really broad range and it requires that broad based strategy. So for me, the skating for everyone is incredibly exciting because it really is the place where we're bringing together, you know, intentional anti-racism. We're thinking about gender diversity in sport. We're thinking about how do we address barriers and systemic exclusions, but also how do we build the program? So we're thinking about that skating across life and not projecting on this is what success in skating looks like and then leaving everyone else out, but really kind of allowing people to say, this is why I participate skating. This is why it means something to me. And then creating the spaces for them to bring that forward. The strategic plan actually names those things as well. It names all of those areas that need to be worked on. And organizations, when they put things in their strap plan, that usually means they'll take action on them. Yeah, that is really exciting. Shifting gears slightly, I watched the discussion that you did with the Figure Skating Diversity and Inclusion Alliance on Asians in skating, which was a great (laughs) conversation, and I'm going to make sure to link that. But I wanted to ask if you didn't mind sort of summing up a little bit of some of the things that you shared. I think that there's starting to be more of a conversation about microaggressions and prejudice and that it's not easy because there's a lot of Asians in skating. 
Yeah. And that's um, really interesting for me because I, you know, I can't quite remember what I said at that moment, but I think when we had that discussion, it was not long after the Atlanta murders and a lot of real reflection within Asian communities about the way that certain types of representation create kind of ways that violence is perpetrated. And then also for me thinking about, you know, how skating is part of those broader social frameworks, particularly our language around model minorities, right? And the way the model minority myth functions in skating. And I think East Asians tend to fall into that model minority um, kind of language, much like they do in broader society, right, in North America. So this idea that you have people who are going to work really hard, will be disciplined, will follow the rules, and will do it better than others. So even as we see more people represented, and I think positive images, we often also hear a reproduction and a kind of microaggression. So I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that I have heard, you know, comments that people go, well, you know, skating is now dominated by Asians. I'm never quite sure what that means. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like internationally, there's a lot of successful people from Asian countries. Do you mean, you know, within the countries themselves? And I think here we begin to hear somehow certain people of theirs seen as being successful, that there's somehow too many of you present, right? You know, and this always takes me to... <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like, when will there be too many women on the Supreme Court? Well, you know, when it's all women, and then maybe that'll just be okay. And it's actually never too many. Because when there were, when it's all men, no one said there are too many men for a long time. So, you know, it always takes me back to those phrasings. But it reminds us of the way that some people begin to feel displaced, that they have a right to be there and others are taking over their space. And so there's that kind of tension in the model minority. Work really hard, you succeeded but you weren't supposed to become more successful than some. And so even though I think there's a lot of celebration of individual skaters, I think collectively, I'm mindful that there's also a language that's going on around Asian Canadians, Asian Americans, and then even globally. So who succeeds? We should celebrate anyone's success <laughs> if they do well, but also remember that for every individual from any group who succeeds, there's a whole bunch of people who actually weren't as successful. So it's also not a question of like, well, they all do better, right? And I think we also hear this language that makes me also concerned because I think we hear a lot of stereotypical language about certain body types or assumptions that certain ethnic backgrounds, um, racial backgrounds lend themselves to certain bodies. And this is what's going to be successful in skating. And I worry about those because I think the impact is that you're messaging to many often young people but anyone across any age group actually through the adults that only certain bodies can participate in skating so i think that's absolutely wrong all people can learn to skate and they can learn to do many things well i very much appreciate skate canada has a great body positivity guidelines and other things how much they circulate and get put in place i don't know so i think we see kind of microaggressions that bodies should work in certain ways and then I think in the broader one, the real language around being Asian, I think in skating right now, the thing about the model minority is that the whole phrase, the whole practice of some people excelling within the rules means that what you're saying is that others didn't, that you're de facto defining some bodies as unruly, unable to be disciplined to your framework. And what it does is it creates and contributes to racism within, and usually in this context, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, and classism, just kind of class dynamics. When we say this, we mean certain kinds of, you know, model minorities, so that you worked really hard to become like everyone. And so when I hear the kind of language that sometimes people think is positive, where they're like, it's great to see the success. And I'm like, it is great. It's great to see success by people from many different backgrounds. But to assume that some people and their families and their kind of 
way they train is inherently better than others. You know, I think this is when we have to really question what do we mean by those? How do we build a solidarity and a kind of understanding of the broader racisms and push ourselves to also think about East Asians, very well represented, South Asians, not so much globally and within Canada, North America. And when we look at the demographics, that shouldn't necessarily be the same. So what does that tell us about either what communities we're appealing to or when people stop participating. I'm sure the U.S. is the same, but in Canada, our learn to skate, our can skate programs, incredibly diverse, right? Kids want to learn to skate and people are really working, you know, through Skate Canada. We have a few initiatives trying to work with more newcomer groups, all of these different things. Many clubs are engaged in these initiatives as well. But why is it that they don't see themselves in skating beyond a certain level or in roles like officials as technical specialists, you know? And so what do we need to do to build that? And I think that's where some of the work at Skate Canada now are trying to do initiatives that build that and kind of say like where is it that all of a sudden skating doesn't become part of their world of understanding you know as you're describing that sort of sense of white fear of displacement or that racial anxiety that is working at sometimes an unacknowledged level within those comments it's something that turns into looking for ways to find flaws or some of the narrative around asian skaters not being as expressive you know i would have thought with so many skaters who have been successful and fantastic artists in so many different ways that we wouldn't be seeing that and yet when you listen to the commentaries, there can be that assumption about particularly younger women that they're not showing their own personality on the ice or that there's somehow something lacking there with younger Japanese or Korean skaters. I think that phrase that people often think is a compliment, but has so much embedded in it where they'll say so-and-so is a great technician. And you can say that and follow it up. And I think what I am hearing when I'm watching a lot of live streams and I'm doing these things, I tend to hear the same voices over and over again. And I think what I really am appreciating is that there's a greater effort, I think, by those who are offering commentary to kind of think about stage of development, right? And to sort of say, well, this is the areas that they're working on. And so that we don't kind of place what we think are strengths versus areas that they're still working on in kind of these absolutes, but really reflecting on this is what they're bringing forward and this is what they're still working on. And I think because we see then all of the skaters are working in different areas. And again, our expectation of what facial expression should be, what seriousness should be often kind of coded. So when people say, well, they're incredibly refined, we're like, it's the world of skating. So then in my mind, I'm always like, oh, code for they are able to personify upper class, white European aristocratic ethos, right? You know, and those were the ideals of skating for a long time. I think we're moving out of them. And that isn't to say there isn't a space for that. But I think once we begin to appreciate that skating is about performance, it's creative. Everyone's learning to express music in different ways. And there is no kind of inherent better or worse one, right? And this idea, and I like as more skaters take on different kinds of music, they're willing to explore and move in different ways. I think that will open up some of the aesthetic norms of the sport. And so that also when we look for certain kinds of expression, we don't actually only look for one kind. And I think that's also it, that we, we fail to appreciate other movements that people want to see. At the same time, I think this is where the skating communities do have to start having very serious conversations and learning on what it means to have responsible choreography, what it means to be kind of ethically 
accountable for your representations. And so thinking through, you know, not just cultural appropriation as a throw out, like never do X, Y, Z, but really appreciating that our, our creative processes need to be embedded in our ongoing learning. And that also is about different stages of career learning training. So, you know, for me, the expectations of someone at the international level is much higher than someone who's coming forward early on in their career, who's engaging with it. But, you know, my hope is that as we also start talking about what does it mean to be Asian? Also, what does it mean to represent, say, Asianist or Blackness or any of these things on the ice and who gets to do it? And more importantly, how do you do it? How do you do this in a responsible way? And I think that's where as we become more global and there's different skating and people go, well, I saw so-and-so did this. And so no, I want to do this. Stepping back and going like, how and why would I do that? And what's the meaning in the reception? One thing that I was inspired by that you shared with me was the story of the Nexus Synchro team and how they worked with Indigenous musicians and choreographers to put together their program. Could you share a little bit more about that story too? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think this was, you know, an incredibly exciting moment in the Canadian skating community and in synchronized skating. But for many of us who were engaged in this, I know the, you know, the working group itself was really excited as well. Synchro teams keep their music pretty quiet. And so then someone's like, have you heard what Nexus is doing? And they skated to a piece by Jeremy Dutcher, who's um, an Indigenous artist in Canada. And, you know, of course, in my mind, right away when I heard that, I was like, really? And I said, well, does anyone know about it, their creative process? And luckily, those were able to kind of reach out to the team and talk with us. And so as I understand it, and they did a beautiful video on their creative process um, as a way of trying to help create the setting for this, but they really liked the music. They reached out to Jeremy Dutcher, the artist, to say, we'd like to skate to this music. And so immediately engaging, I think, with the artist saying, what do we, you know, this is what we would like to do. Then Jeremy Dutcher said, that would be great, but you need to work with, you know, here's the choreographer I want you to work with if you're going to use my music. And that's B. Solomon. Um, B. Solomon had worked on the music video for this as an indigenous artist and dancer and choreographer and worked with the team. The video that they put together is beautiful. B. Solomon is narrating it so a kind of sharing with it but also that it was embedded in learning um the way the costumes reflect that the types of movement in my mind a huge risk taker actually <laughs> by the team because i think they also understood the learning beside it and i saw it perform live um, at the national championships it was still fairly new because you know as the season goes but the kind of emotional impact that it brought forward and in the canadian context was just amazing and i think could only have been brought forward by a creative process that took seriously what it meant to do this. Now, when I say that, of course, I also recognize that working in that way requires resources. And so only a national team could really probably take that on and work in those ways. But one of the things that we've done through the EDI working group um, with Skate Canada, and now we're heading into kind of second year, is what we call our equity, diversity, inclusion communities of practice. These are really about people who already feel committed to it, but want to engage in learning, conversation with others. And they happen about every couple months. I say about because it's not really a cycle, but one of the ones that we had earlier last year and that we'll be kind of doing another one in early in the new year as we go into choreography season again is on ethical and responsible choreography. 
And so rather than saying to people, here's your list of do's and don'ts, it's kind of like a question flowchart. And it asks, why are you picking certain pieces? Do you have the resources to kind of have a kind of consultation process? What's your understanding or who are you going to go to to learn about whether it's a style of dance, a style of music? How are you going to engage them? And it's kind of flow that takes you through. And the hope is that if you're answering no to a lot, like I don't have the resources, I don't have any connections to learn about this. No, I've actually never been to a dance class taught by somebody who's Indigenous and if it's Indigenous dance, like all of these things. And if you're answering no along the way, the hope is that you might reflect and say, maybe I'm not the person to do this program now and here. And so that it's also contextual. And so it's thinking through, well, what does that mean? And really reflecting also, if you only know a certain style by stereotypical movements, to kind of reflect, well, what do I need to learn? And one of the big questions on that sheet really is, do I have the time, the resources, and the willingness to do the learning to do this program well? You know, and I do choreography, but mostly for star kids, some podium pathway, you know, and not a lot each year. So I'm not choreographer by this is my full-time job, but those are the questions I ask myself all the time. And even if a skater brings forward music and they say, this is what I'd like to skate to. And I think to myself, you know, can I do that well? And if I can't, and if I don't have the time to do that work, it's my responsibility to say to them, like, here's why I might not be comfortable doing this in this moment, or here's why perhaps we want to think again, you know, and sometimes I will say to the skaters, a lot of skaters, I want to skate to Aladdin. And I'll say, well, here's why I tend to not use the music. There's a tendency to have certain representations of racialized people in this or an idea of a sexualization of the princess. So if you have a different reason and way you want to interpret it, we might be able to do that. But I'm like, but if your desire is to like play out this relationship and kind of play the part, you know, I always say I'm not really fully comfortable with that. And it's amazing. You can have these conversations with an eight or nine, 10 year old and they'll go, oh, okay. You know, oh, that's nice. And they'll think about it. And then they'll say, oh, well, this is what I love about the song because it's about freedom to be who you want to be. And I'm like, oh, well, that's your message. Like we can do that. I'm all for those messages, you know, and kind of claiming your yourself and your kind of own expression. But I think too often we assume that it has to be done in one way. And so I'm really excited because I think these are new conversations happening. And a lot of people seem wanting to learn. But it does take a lot of reflection and a willingness to say, that's really not for me to do here and now, because I don't have the capacity to do it. And I think that's often hard for us to, because it requires recognizing our limits, as well as the enthusiasm for what we might create. I think it also demands taking seriously of the artistic component of skating and putting resources toward choreography and learning. And we expect that not that ice dancers do this well all the time by any means, but that there is sometimes I think a little bit more of an expectation that ice dancers will spend the time to do that and to think more about their aesthetic choices and what they're saying with it. But certainly at an elite level, it would be nice to see more resources going into different forms of dance, different forms of music and expression and asking skaters to do more on that side, which I think would also go with needing to expect more of judges, frankly. Yeah, well, our excitement with the Skate Canada um, EDI community of practice is that it's open to the whole community and we actually are seeing a number of officials and judges participating and certainly encouraging them to participate in these conversations because I think also what happens here is that internalization and internalization by many people, often, you know, people who are in marginalized communities, we learn to present what we think is most acceptable and so often replay the kinds of very ways of passing or the kind of norms. So 
it is true that particularly in skating, those from underrepresented groups sometimes are more likely to stay within the norms and and the kind of aesthetic norms that they think that need to be there. Um, and so this is where going back to that question when people say, oh, well, you know, these skaters don't seem so expressive or they're doing this. And you think, well, maybe because they're holding themselves within the norms because they're really worried about the reception. And I think one of the things is trying to encourage greater engagement with officials and judges, but also, and I think right back to I think it was last spring. So Sharice Swoonsome, who is a synchro judge, um, a national national level judge in Canada, did a wonderful video piece for Skate Canada and reflecting on what this means and kind of just saying, well, you know, when I was a synchro skater, I really thought that people looked at me and they saw my body sticking out. And I thought that I was being judged on all these ways. And so trying to always stay in the norms. And then her just kind of turned around and saying, you know what? actually as a judge we're not looking for that in synchro we are actually looking for how well you work as a team how you're moving through so we're not actually thinking about the shape of your body you know whether you're racialized she said my goal is to really bring that message forward because you know we internalize as well what we think are expected and i think that leads to a lot of the stereotypical movements the costumes people think well if i'm not dressed this way and don't do these movements they'll think i don't get this music and so we often internalize as well the limits to that kind of free and that creative process and expression that it can be something different and that you don't need to reproduce them. And I think that's the danger of that kind of cycle. And so the more we can include not just the skaters, the choreographers, the coaches, parents as well, because parents have expectations, but the judges and the officials and kind of a joint conversation of what the process means and how it's responsible, but also opening up that while you might associate a piece of music with a movie or a certain role, that's not the only way to interpret it. And that we have to be open to those different ways. And then if someone chooses to really take on a piece of music that needs that response work, that they're going to do the work. And this is where my favorite piece on this these days really is when Asher Hill on that figure skating show talks about Papadakis and Caesar on and whacking and the work that goes into it. It interviews Axel. And I love that because I think it's so telling when she says, well, I said to them, I'm not just going to give you choreography and walk away. Like, here's what you're going to have to do if you want to do this. And it's so powerful because I think that's what we also have to realize is that certain forms of movement, we have an ethical responsibility ability to do that work if we want to do it and so when she just kind of calls it out it's like my favorite yeah. line I feel like I can put it on repeat over and over again and just keep playing it yeah I'm definitely going to link to that video as well it's such a great example the rhythm dance last year was asking skaters to engage with black culture and black music that's not what was said but that's kind of what was meant there is a responsibility to do that in an ethical way and to think about it. And it seems like they're one of the teams that actually engaged with that process meaningfully. Yeah, I mean, the whole urban dance, street dance, they've called it different things at different times. It's to me as fascinating. I think it's because when you got to the kind of parentheses of what was possible under that, it's a huge range. But when it's everything from R&B, jive, blues to hip hop, all of these. So, you know, these are coded African-American Black music. I actually thought there were less major, really offensive ones that I was expecting. And I think that actually just also tells us how over time and historically, many of those music forms have been kind of whitened as well. So that I noticed there was a lot of people moving towards more kind of safe ones. So thinking about the blues, thinking about the jive, right? But we know if we think back to this, you know, and we add in, obviously tap dance wasn't one of the, but we add in certain dances, we know what the histories are and how they come to be, but also how they create a comfort space in 
white cultures. And I found the whole thing fascinating. Fascinating because when people want to go safe, I like to interpret it as we're aware of the places where there might be missteps. And so in their safety, did not go through those as much. And then, you know, obviously people like Papadakis and Caesar Rome, like just such a phenomenal example, not only for their skating, but of how to work in good ways. I just was so sort of compelled by both watching it, but then hearing the story back through it, I think was really powerful and recognizing, again, it's not just about race, but in this place, particularly around queer cultures and what that means. And that they were willing to speak about it. So thrilled to have someone like Asher bringing this forward. So again, thinking that, you know, certain people's cultures are appropriated more than others and that somehow people think they're free to do it either for humor or other things. So this is where you're cross-dressing on the ice, all of these things where people think it's entertainment and you're like, it's not entertainment. It's people's lives. And when you think it's only there for certain ways. And so that really bringing back the, again, this question of impact and why you want to do it. So, you know, I always say to people, if you want to do a number where you're cross-dressing, because you want to show the power of skating to explore different gender identities and to be able to move beyond the one that society keeps telling you to perform, then I'm all for it. If you want to do it because you think it's going to get some laughs from the crowd, then absolutely not. And it's really interesting because I said it could look quite similar in its end product, but the why and how you went about doing it is key and you have to be accountable for that a viewer, an audience member might see something and they might react to it and say, I don't like that for these reasons. But I think if you know why you did it, then they're quite different. And that's where I hope skating can go. And I think more people are having the conversations. You know, there's never enough, but my hope is that it will go that direction. Sometimes I see in fan spaces that tendency of people on the internet to want to be very quick to snap to judgments that there's often that these should be blanket rules. That's never allowed the skater should never do this. And it skips past that conversation. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is really exciting, actually, in skating right now, and the way conversations are being driven is people like you involved, you know, people like Erica, others where I think people who move across kind of spaces of critical analysis, and political activism, and lived experience of skating in an ongoing way, and an ability to bring that out into the kind of broader realm of who's talking, is a big shift. And I think a lot of previous analysis, even in currently in fan spaces, but whether it was academic articles and sort of other ways, for the large majority of those, the access to skating was what was the final product. So watching, you know, whether it's the live stream or on TV, watching the final product of the program and not actually having access to those who'd created it or an understanding of kind of how the practice is, how community is built, right? And so, and so you only see the final product. And you don't necessarily think about the negotiations, the way, you know, empowerment, disempowerment, power works in all of these. I'm really excited to see the way that voices are coming in that are kind of able to bring the critical awareness, but also to kind of think about like, here's the, for my, all of us have our own slices, right? Yeah. Here's from like slices of involvement, how I also see this operating. So aware of the compromises, the kinds of the conflicted moments in each of ours. And here I always think about Erica's book. And I can remember reading this. I don't know if I've admitted this to you and Erica, but I, I got an advanced copy um, mm -hmm. at an academic conference and I proceeded to stay up like all night reading it. I was like so tired the next day. But that kind of being able to be critical of what's happening, thinking about the dynamics, but also always showing that joy and the why the sport is so compelling to you and knowing that your participation is never perfect. It's always negotiated space. 
and being able to articulate that with a kind of self-awareness but also just like a fun to it when i first read Eggers' book i was like i don't know i was laughing i was crying i was like embarrassed for the sport all the different emotions and and also going oh my god so smart and i think the more we can kind of create those spaces where we're like we have these conversations because we love to skate the skating there's something about it that for many people draws you back in for different capacities whether it's being on the ice physically or volunteering being a fan and that doesn't mean that you're not critical of the space that actually but an awareness that if with all of its problems you can still be so engaged and so like enthralled with it all actually that you want it to feel like a safe space and a welcoming space for others, but that everyone needs to be able to come into it and not only on the terms where it's already been, but in order to have more people involved, it does have to transform so that it's not about assimilation. But I think there is an openness because there is this kind of growing capacity. At least maybe I have more friends now who are doing this, but this is what makes me excited about all these kinds of conversations because... I think there is that critical mass and also that the national sports organizations, the clubs, the you know people are listening and are hearing that this is a necessary reflection as well. And so, well, you know, they might not really want to have the full on whatever critical race theory and skating discussion. <laughs> they certainly are like my club's running a competition this weekend. And the questions to me really are. So what should our dressing room signage look like? How should the announcer greet people? You know, what should we be doing here? And so they're often action oriented but they come with learning. So people are like, well, why is that? I never thought about that before. And I think for me, these are always positive spaces. There's so much work to be done, but I I am very optimistic in a world where I thought we would never have these discussions. Yeah, that's such a great note for us to wrap up on. So much of why I wanted to do the podcast is because I was inspired by realizing that there are so many people in different facets of the sport who in their own ways are saying, yes, this is a problem. And rather than saying, so therefore, let's throw away skating or I'm going to walk away from it and not engage with it, finding ways to then come back to it and change it. I continue to be so impressed by real generation of some retired and some still competing skaters who are willing to talk about the ways that skating was harmful for them, but also then trying to claim more space to be themselves in it, to change things in it. And it's very inspirational to me. In this moment where it often feels like we're actually moving backwards and like those oppressions are getting more and more into place. And I don't think skating is outside of those, right? Not everyone was happy that we're having these discussions. But one of the things that motivates me is even though my experience in skating, you know, there are times that I can point out and go, you know, this is where I can see microgressions operate, but was a pretty positive experience. Like I rarely stepped away. And when I did, it was less about trauma and more about like, this is somewhere else in my life. But what's our responsibility for those who've been able to kind of live in this world and, you know, in many ways thrive in this world. What's the responsibility to others? And that's kind of one of the things that I bring forward in different parts of my life as I kind of get situated. And I kind of think, well, you know, once you're in a position where you have privilege and time that making this a space and transforming it and even when it's on that individual level of just someone comes to the club and you're like, I can make this a better space for you because I can say that these are conversations I'm part of. And I think that makes a big difference rather than the, we don't talk about gender, race, sexuality. We don't talk about these things in skating because skating just is. And as we know, the just is, is usually a code word for I'm happy with the status quo. And so all the signs that kind of say we're open to this conversation make a big difference. And I hope that means that more people can kind of find their place in the sport who want to be here. And that's the goal. Absolutely. 
Thanks so much, Tina. As always, you gave me a lot to think about and feel so privileged that we have you in the sport doing this work, you know, all the spaces that you're in as, as a coach and as a change maker. Thank you again to Tina for sharing so much with us. You can look at the show notes for a transcript of this episode, as well as links to many of the resources and projects we discussed. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating podcast on whatever platform you use, follow it on social media, and share it with your friends.